Welcome back to the Revolution Ideology Podcast. I'm Jared. I'm Nick. And today we are going to uh, take a brief foray back into one of our earlier series called Myth is America, where we take uh, what is known as traditional or ethically constitutive U.S. history and uh, and go all post-structuralist on it and deconstruct it uh, for its socialization effect. And today we are uh, we're talking Mexican-American War. Seems like it's come up a little bit in the news recently, which is what kind of piqued our interest. So we're going to do a little bit of that today. We're going to talk a little bit about the history, but more like the effects of that history as it's taking place and some of the mythos around why we talk about it the way we do uh, through today, especially in that that state of Texas. So um, anything else you want to chime in on here? No, I was just going to say exactly what you just said. Like people in Texas take this ridiculously seriously and it's so funny to me. And yeah, I mean, their their view on it is, is so embarrassingly warped, but uh, we'll talk a little bit about that today. Um, and like I said, it's, it's, it's come back to the forum at least, I mean, Washington Post had an article, what, just two days ago. Um, so that's what kind of piqued our interest to get back into this a little bit. I do want to also, like I said, adding to this preface, um, talk about if you're looking for more um, stuff on like battles and strategies and things along those lines, that is not my uh, forte in history whatsoever. I'm not a military historian, so I'm going to disappoint those of you that are looking for like a military history here. I'm not going to provide that. I'll mention some of the important battles, but I'm not going to go into like the details. So um, let's... Uh, Let's dig right in. First thing I want to talk about real quickly, even though it, it, it doesn't set the context right away, um, but I want to talk about this idea of manifest destiny. We've brought it up before a number of times on Myth is America, uh, especially when we were talking about um, uh, early American colonization, I think is what we talked about. Not British colonization of the continent, but how America went colonial against First Nations. And we talked a little bit about the ideas of manifest destiny there. The official term itself is not coined until I believe like 1845 by John O'Sullivan, who at the time was kind of a partisan Democratic, um, Democratic Party, I should say. Um, what's the term I'm looking for? Um, not propagandist, but kind of like, I mean, he had, I mean, he wrote articles and he wrote mm -hmm. magazines arguing for certain, um, certain types of imperial policy and Manifest Destiny was one of those. And it drew a lot of criticism even back in its own day, which is kind of surprising because now it's kind of taught as like canon in American history. But even then it was uh, critical because it went against the purported ideals of, um, Republicanism and, 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 and again, not the political party in this case, but the idea of a republic, um, mm -hmm. a free republic. Um, and it went against those ideals, especially the ideals that they had just fought against uh, just a few decades earlier against England. So anyway, it's interesting to think about. Um, we'll dig a little bit more into the ideas of manifest destiny. But in short, as a sociologist, what are your what do you teach when you talk about manifest destiny? What 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 is the concept here? It's basically like providing a term and an ethos to like it's not imperialism because it's not one country conquering another country but this idea that there's this god-given right for these people to rule over this land and essentially do whatever they want to do in this geographical area to the natural environment to the people that already live there basically anything that they want 
is a justification for imperialism and colonization is what right. it is, um, and an unapologetic one, right? Mm-hmm. Like, this is destiny. In, in, in the words of O'Sullivan, is the right of our manifest destiny to overspread and to possess the whole of the continent, which providence has given us for the development of the great experiment of liberty and federated self-government entrusted to us. This is key in this quote because he speaks about liberty and federated self-government only for them. He doesn't talk about the fact that this is going to be like the end of liberty and self-government for millions of people to include indigenous peoples, uh, people of what we're going to be talking about today that live in Mexico. This is going to be the end of their liberty. So well, I mean, and we can't. Like, this is com- consistent imperial rationalization, right? And it's 100% white supremacy. And it is white supremacy. It is wildly racist. So that is manifest destiny in a very short, probably inadequate nutshell. But let's keep moving on. So to talk about the Mexican War for Independence, we've got to talk about um, a little bit of context. And of course, that is, wait, what did I just say? Mexican War for Independence? Did Mm -hmm. I just say that? Yeah, I got you messed up. Yeah, you got me messed up now. Uh, Mexican-American War, we have to do a little bit of context building. And that is where the Mexican War for Independence comes in. Um, it deserves its whole its own episode, so I'm just going to briefly gl- gloss over it and basically just state that uh, beginning in the well, beginning much more in the late 1700s, there were a whole bunch of pushes throughout Latin America for independence from their colonial power, Spain. But they really came to fruition if I skip over all of the details in the 1820s. So 1821 for Mexico, they officially gained their independence from Spain, fighting for many of the similar ideals the United States uh, uh, purportedly fought for against England. Um, but afterwards, just like in the United States, Mexico, um, struggled a little bit setting up a new independent economy an independent, an economy that was going to be predicated on resources that Spain, of course, still, uh, wanted as did other European colonies and how they were going to negotiate that. We know again, the United States, if you've listened to other parts of our myth is America series also struggled with how it was going to now renegotiate its economic relationship with England. Cause it still needed England's economic, it still needed to be able to trade with England and mm-hmm. France and these other countries. So Mexico was going to have to do the same thing with Spain. So economically, they struggled to set things up. They also struggled a little bit with setting up that Republican-style government. They did take inspiration from all of the revolutions that had taken place right before them to include the United States War for Independence, the French Revolution, as well as the Haitian Revolution. All of them played a role in what is now popularly called the Atlantic Revolutions, of which which the Mexican War for Independence qualifies. So let's just... um, uh, quickly say that Mexico, as of 1821, was independent and was struggling to find its footing as a new country. Um, it also struggled in maintaining some of its territorial integrity, especially to the north as well as to the south. A whole bunch of other countries would eventually win their independence from Mexico, like Guatemala and so on and so forth, as they separated. But for our purposes here, we're focusing on the north. And the territorial territorial integrity um, that they struggled to maintain was due to First Nations coming back into the region and reclaiming um, their control over certain regions. So like the Comanche Nation and the Apache Nations, um, all of these nations would come back and they would wage war on settlers from like both sides, Mexican settlers, American settlers, because they were basically defending their livelihood at this point. Um, if you've listened to any of our Myth is America series, we've talked about this ad nauseum. At this point, we're in the 1800s. It's pretty well known around First Nations that if these imperial powers are around, there's no more negotiation anymore. They are not mm-hmm. here to negotiate. They are here to take. And so these nations were basically fighting for their for their lives. We taught, we called it the indigenous apocalypse in some of these other episodes that Tecumseh was fighting against. Well, it's very similar here. Yep. So anyway, this is important, but it also is going to play a role in the establishment of what would eventually be called the Lone Star Republic. 
republics. So during this time, as Mexico is trying to find its economic, its military, its political footing, um, they are um, also dealing with an immigration issue. So um, the origins of, of American immigration to Mexico, and yes, you are hearing that correctly. Uh, I will be repeating this <laughs> over and over again. The origins of American uh, um, I should say U.S. or would be more appropriate since everybody on, on North and South America is American, but that's a whole different can of worms I don't feel like uh, opening at this moment. But yes, the origins of United States immigration to Mexico really kicks off. I mean, it happened before this, but the most famed case, of course, is Stephen F. Austin and him taking about 300 families into Mexican territory from Missouri. I must stress this, the very famed Stephen F. Austin, father of Texas, if you will, the capital's named out, the capital's not named out, yeah, the capital's mm-hmm. named out, wow, I brain fart right there for just a <laughs> second, um, named after him and so on and so forth, immigrated to Mexico from Missouri from United States territory. So let me just say that again. Is Americans immigrating to Mexico? Okay. Now, the good news is this first set um, had gone through all of the proper rigors to legally immigrate. This first set. That does not count the thousands of others that kind of followed suit and illegally emigrated to Mexico. So Stephen F. Austin and this initial like 300 families, they go through all the proper channels to make sure that everything's kosher with the Mexican government before they move into Mexican territory, which would eventually be called Texas. But I must stress that alongside them came thousands of illegal American immigrants into Mexico. What do you think of that? That, that t- part of Texas's foundational story is about American illegal immigration into Mexico. What I do you think? think? The irony is, is thick here. Yeah, this move takes place in 1820, um, and again, Mexico allowed it for a whole host of reasons. A, there were some econo- there was some economic incentive that these people, of course, would be bringing um, some opportunities, some economic opportunities regarding um, uh, establishing perhaps farmland, perhaps trade in, in Texas. Um, and there were also political and military reasons. They also thought uh, low-key that these American immigrants to Mexico would be sort of a buffer between them and the rise of the Comanche Nation, and they would actually be able to perhaps help um, in dealing with the Comanche Nation. Um, of course, throughout all this, uh, I, I must confess I'd be rooting for the Comanche Nation over all of these forces, but that's just my own personal opinion on this. Uh, they get the rawest end of the deal here. But regardless, that's one of the reasons the Mexican government was okay with some of these immigrants. Again, hundreds, not thousands, and it's thousands that came. All right. Now, this is important. Part of the original Mexican constitution and later amendments to that constitution, and I'm not going to go through all of them right now, and also constitutions like different state constitutions in Mexico, eventually, it didn't happen initially, but eventually over the first eh, seven years of Mexican independence led to uh, abolition of slavery. So that's one of the most important parts here. Stephen F. Austin, along with the 300 legal families and thousands of other illegal families that made their way into Mexico, um, were for the most part bringing with them their property, that were that gross word we're going to use right now. And part of that property, uh, at least in their wildly racist um, opinion, was what? 
Slaves. Slaves. And uh, Mexico uh, was far ahead of the United States on this topic, and they were done. They were done with slavery. They have a very long history dating back um, to, of course, uh, Cortez's conquest of the Mexica uh, and the Mayans and so on and so forth, and eventually establishing um, encomienda systems and slave-based economies and all that other stuff. There's a very long, rich history that Mexico was actually trying to separate itself from right off, right off the jump. That's actually a major distinction right there between Mexican and independence and U.S. independence is the United States didn't really change a whole hell of a lot after it won its independence, contrary to popular belief. Don't believe us. Go back and listen to some episodes on that. But Mexico was willing to at least make a major change here when it won its independence. It wanted to erase that racist past. Now, has it? Probably not. But that was the goal. So abolition of slavery was absolutely key. Now, how do you think these, um, we're now just call them Texans. I'm mispro- I'm pronouncing it like a, like a gringo right now, but that's not how it would be pronounced, but I'm going to, I'm going to do that. So I don't butcher it. How do you think these Texans took to basically being forced or were, be- they weren't forced at gunpoint, but basically now it is illegal for them to own slaves. How do you think they took to that, Nick? I mean, just like the Southerner- Southerners would take to it a couple of decades later. Yeah, they were very unhappy with having to give up their slaves because they were in the moral and ethical wrong here. Moreover, there was also some um, taxes and tariffs implemented on other um, imported goods from the United States that they also didn't want to pay, right? Like no taxation, right? That's not what they wanted to do. They wanted to live in a new country, but keep their way of life and not have to pay taxes. Mm -hmm. You want to talk about like entitlement and privilege. You don't get much more entitled and privileged than Texans in the 1820s or perhaps Texans now, I suppose. I don't know. I mean, like, yeah, I mean, what, 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 what a group of, of people anyway. So we can see, but we can see where they got it from, right? This is, this is it right here. This is right. You expect to live in Mexico and receive the benefits of living in Mexico for whatever reason you didn't find those benefits living in Missouri. So now you live in Mexico now and you don't want to have to pay to have to live there and you want to maintain your lifestyle and not have to adopt any of the legal um, um, purview of the place you moved to. Mm -hmm. Embarrassing. Totally. Embarrassing. Okay, anyway, um, this leads to, of course, uh, eventually the rise in a call for independence of Texas, right? There are uh, a lot of people here that are willing to fight for independence from Mexico because they don't want to have to pay uh, those tariffs or those taxes, and they certainly don't want to have to give up their slaves. So as they become more and more militant over time, Mexico responds in kind. And without going into a lot of detail here, uh, we get to a standoff, a major standoff that's going to take place at a, a little Play, uh, well, at a little place. I said place twice here, but whatever. It's going to take place at the Alamo, one of the most famous places, um, historical places in Texas, if not the United States. And uh, we know that in the United States, this is framed as some sort of like overly heroic um, last stand by like Davy Crockett. There's a whole mythology here. We know that Travis, who is a general, is a position general. I don't really care what his position. Like they were so brave for basically willing to die for like Texas and independence and quote unquote freedom. Never mind the fact that what they were actually fighting for against the Mexican military was the right to keep slaves. How is that left out? Now I really want you to kind of go in. How is that part of the Alamo story, one of the most famous stories, arguably in U.S. history and definitely one of the most famous stories in Texas history, how is that part left out? Yes, they did fight until they died. Most of like what you hear about the Alamo that happened there is accurate. Yes, they they, they died. They The Mexican military did kill them. And perhaps they, if you're, I guess, a military historian, did fight bravely at this last stand. But what they were fighting for cannot be left to the dustbins of history. Right. What do you think? I mean, framing it in a way when they were 
you know, that they were fighting for and willing to die for their right to own slaves tarnishes the this story as an ethically constitutive story, right? It's not as appealing a foundational myth if uh, what the entire myth is based on is a war over the right to own human beings as property. Right. And then, again, this all takes place in 1836, and it all they fall to the hands of, at this point, general-slash-dictator uh, Santa Ana. He's, of course, li- he's, he's legion in American history as one of the villains, so absolutely. Um, he's also somewhat of a villain in Mexican history as well. He's a very interesting character. There's a lot of bios on Santa Ana we, we could probably highly recommend. That, that guy was all over the place. He's a very interesting historical figure. Anyway... Texas uh, uh, claims its independence in 1836. We get the Battle of the Alamo. Of course, Texas loses handily. uh, I was about to say, unfortunately, I guess it's a matter of opinion, but I guess in my opinion, unfortunately, um, Sam Houston and his Texas Rangers are able to eventually um, win the very uh, important battle called the Battle of San Jacinto, capture Santa Ana, um, who is at that point forced to essentially sign like the independence of Texas away because of his capture, which is somewhat unusual in history that one individual was granted that much authority, especially in in a republic. Mexico is technically a republic, even though Santa Ana is posing as dictator at this point. Um, But he's essentially able to make this this executive decision because of his own capture, right? Like, so no one else is really consulted when this decision is made that Texaco is basically, Texaco, man, (laughs) I can't even speak today. Texas is essentially granted its independence because Santa Ana is, um, is forced to sign it. And I think the interesting piece here, in fact, actually, before I move on here, I want to give real quick shout out. Great article on Alamo and acting as like a reverse ethically constitutive story in this case is, is an article by Raul Ramos um, in uh, Guernica uh, magazine, and it's called The Alamo is a Rupture. So if you just like Google that, you'll find it. It's a great article that probably does a much better job than I'm doing right now in discussing its ethically constitutive properties, properties the Alamo, in terms of U.S. history as well as Texas history. So I want to give a shout out there real quick before I forget. But anyway, after all this takes place and the Rangers capture Santa Ana and he signs away Texas Texas independence. We have this period here, um, this period of, I don't know, approximately like eight to nine years where people are trying on both sides to decide like what's going to transpire here. Mexico um, isn't necessarily going, because it did technically Santa Ana signed this treaty, isn't necessarily going to do a whole lot about of te- uh, Texas independence right off the bat. The United States has also been watching this from the sidelines. And the plan was always for Texas to join the United States, right? That Like I get that in certain versions of Texas history, they're very, very happy and proud of their heritage of these eight to nine years of being the Lone Star Republic, this like independent entity. But the plan was always to join the United States and the United States always had eyes for Texas, or at least the majority of USers had eyes for Texas. But there was a hang up. There was a couple of hang ups as to why they didn't immediately like annex um, annex Texas, why the United States did not immediately annex, te- annex Texas. Any idea on what some of those reasons might be? No, I don't actually. Okay, so the first reason is uh, the United States didn't initially, especially under President Martin Van Buren, didn't initially want to go to war with Mexico. And they were worried if they annexed Texas, that that would lead to war with Mexico. And some political thinkers at the time didn't think that was going to follow through on U.S. ethics, uh, nor did they think it was worth U.S. lives at the time, given um, 
how bloody parts of the Texas War for Independence had become. Um, what would be another reason is slavery, the question of slavery. So obviously at this point, the U.S. is already going through this um, period where it is basically trying to offset every slave state or every free state with another of the same kind. So if Texas did join the Union, it was vehemently going to join as a slave state based on what we've already discussed. Mm -hmm. What would be a free state that could be added to offset that? Could it be Oregon where England's hanging out? Are they going to have to go to war with England over Oregon? That's what they're considering. Um, Could it be uh, a different part of Massachusetts that they could just cut off and call Maine, uh, which is part of what they ended up doing. Mm -hmm. But these were things that they were trying to consider um, to make sure that there would always be a balance between slave states and free states in the United States. So that was probably part of the delay that took place. But again, eventually this... Can we just pause for a second and just talk about how completely absurd like that policy is that like, we're only willing to... We're willing to allow slaves within like the country, but only if there's an equal amount of slave states and free states. It's fine that half the country like owns people as property as long as the other half doesn't. Like it's outrageous. Well, like, and it's the, like mental gymnastics, right? Oh, absolutely. And there's also like eyes not just for Texas. There's also a super valuable territory just to the south of Oregon that's also kind of delaying things. What's going to happen with California? California is still part of Mexico, right? Like the, there was no Californian war for independence, at least not yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so the United States had eyes for California. They had eyes for Oregon territory. They also had eyes for California for obvious reasons. Um, and uh, there were definitely, I mean, e- it, there's even a brief period of time where like uh, the American Commodore uh, Thomas like Catsby jo- uh, Jones, he seizes Monterey, California in 1842 and like claims it as like a U.S. territory before eventually he's forced to like give it back. Um, so like there's all of these plans for California and all of it is tied back to what would be called Manifest Destiny. Again, Manifest Destiny as a term uh, by John O'Sullivan is not coined until 1845, but like the idea is already here, right? Like that entitlement, that privilege, that God-given right to do whatever one may choose to other people or other territory or other land. This American exceptionalism is already like in full swing by the 1840s. So that's important for us to understand. Um, Anyway, by the time we get to like 1845, when officially the United States is going to annex Texas and it becomes the 28th state in the Union, one of the things that is going to be up for debate um, as we go into this idea of manifest destiny and now that Texas has been officially annexed is where's the border? What is Texas? Like, what is Texas territorially speaking? Like, what is it? So even after Santa Ana um, had signed away Texas, uh, Texan independence, uh, the Mexican government had always basically thought that they had signed away to Texas's independence at the uh, Nueces River. That's what they had signed away, right? That part of Texas would be independent. North of the Nueces River would be independent. However, Texans and, of course, later Americans decided that, no, it's probably the Rio Grande River. We've decided we want this extra set, this extra territory. So there would be this massive dispute. You're telling me that the United States government went back on a treaty it had signed unheard of. No way. Weird, like a rich history of yeah. basically lying. That's that. Yes, we're. It, it's funny. It's funny as 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 USers in school and our parents all teach us about like integrity and honesty and all these types of things. And the government, when dealing with other peoples, again, especially First Nations, in this case Mexico, has never been that way. Like mm-hmm. has never been that way. They're an embarrassment in terms of their integrity and their honesty, right? Especially when it comes to these treaties. But all right, moving on. Moving on. Okay, so again. 
the Rio Grande at its source is what, again, Texans and eventually Americans decided was going to be the border. Uh, Mexico, of course, said no, hard pass. At the time of this, the Mexican uh, uh, president is President Jose uh, Joaquin de Herrera. There were secret negotiations that had begun between Herrera, de Herrera and the American president, James Polk at this time. It's now we went from Van Buren to Tyler, who I skipped over, and now we're in Polk. Um, and essentially, uh, Polk had had eyes. He had eyes for Texas, or excuse me, he had eyes for California. So he's basically trying to find a way to instigate a war. He ha- had actually won the presidency based on a platform of annexation. So he won the presidency before Texas was officially annexed. He's the president that gets uh, credit for annex- annexing Texas. He also, of course, had eyes for California based on this idea of manifest destiny. So he is looking for a way to manufacture some sort of strife to win enough hearts and minds in the legislative branch, which at the time was the branch that could declare war. In theory, if you read the Constitution, it's still supposedly the branch that declares war. But let's be blunt. Things like Vietnam, Iraq, like that. Right. Yeah, it's not it's not really a thing anymore. They can be manipulated so easy. Um, and now there's like dirty wars and official declarations of war aren't even necessary for, for things like for things like that to take place. But at the time, he wanted to win enough hearts and minds of both American citizens and the legislative branch to declare war. So he's basically going to try and find a way to incite some sort of violence to goad the Mexican military into um, uh, into basically starting this war. And thus, he would have justification for eventually like a full-scale war against Mexico in which he, of course, could seize all of the weir riches um, that he had been eyeballing. Before he does that, he does send a delegation, though, as I said, down to negotiate with um, President de Herrera of Mexico. He sends uh, a man named Slidell down there, and he was instructed to attend uh, to essentially try and purchase California um, and basically the remainder of places like uh, New Mexico. And what he offered was five million dollars for New Mexico and twenty-five million dollars for California. So it's going to be about thirty million dollars for these uh, very large territories at the time. Um, unfortunately, this negotiation was found out by the Mexican press, and the Mexican people were not uh, interested in selling any of that territory. So they rebelled against their own president, and he is overthrown. They overthrow their own president so that he would not sell Mexico, or well, that part of Mexico. Uh, any thoughts on that? <laughs> this is not related at all. All I can think about is like, did you ever see the movie Hot Tub Time Machine? Nah, man. Okay, well, I mean, I'm dude, definitely aware of it, yeah. its existence in the zeitgeist, but I've never he goes bothered back to watch in time it. And like, creates Google, and his name is Lou, so he creates Lugal. But <laughs> I was thinking, like, imagine if you could go back in time and buy California for twenty five million dollars, like how rich you could be. That's all I could think about. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Anyway, so once these negotiations eventually fail and eventually we have a new Mexican president in power, his name is uh, Ariaga. He's not re- he's obviously listening to the popular will of the people. He is not interested in selling Mexico at all. So James Polk decides, OK, there's going to have to be something else that takes place. So he sends down Zachary Taylor and a force of I don't know if I have it here. Uh, thousands. Oh, 4000 dragoon, dragoon American soldiers down to the border. Um, and it's basically a show of force. Like, this is what we're willing to do. He also sends some um, of the Navy down uh, into the Gulf of Mexico to also as a show of force. Like, this is what we're doing. We're not messing around. Like, if you're not going to sell it to us, we're basically going to attempt to take it by force. So again, clearly what we see here is, even though Teddy Roosevelt's not even a thing yet, like, that's not even a thing. We're, we're decades from Teddy Roosevelt. But we still see 
big stick policy here is what mm-hmm. it would be called, right? Like this is that big stick policy that America would eventually use, the United States would eventually use based on not just manifest destiny throughout Latin America, but something we've already talked about in this episode, the Monroe Doctrine dating back all the way to James Monroe. And of course, Teddy Roosevelt takes it to another level with that whole big stick policy and the invasion of Cuba and so on and so forth. So anyway, we already see this at play. So what takes place uh, when Taylor takes these troops all the way down to the border of the show of force is that there is no action. Mexico doesn't necessarily initially react to, um, to Taylor basically hanging out uh, in Mexico. Again, I must stress this. Taylor's on the Rio Grande River, so I guess I should have been clear. I didn't say this. He passes through the Nueces, passes over the Nueces border and goes to the Rio Grande border. He's in Mexican territory. This is already an invasion. If you're Mexico, this is already an invasion. And they don't react. Well, not to mention the fact that Mexico never agreed to the Rio Grande being the border anyway. That's what I'm saying. So by passing yeah. the Oasis River, this oh, is this is saying. yeah, okay. this is yeah. formally now an invasion. So I must stress this. Um, so Taylor's on the Rio Grande, and this is where, after like a series of basically, I don't know, inaction. I, I mean, there's definitely everyone's aware of everyone's presence, right? Mexican forces are aware they're there. Taylor knows what he did. Mm-hmm. Everyone's aware. That this is basically, uh, I mean, yes, this is war hawking. They're trying to go the Mexican military into some sort of engagement, and they get it. They get it via one of the most famous um, uh, affairs in this time period that started a United States war. It's called the Thornton Affair. Basically, the Thornton Affair is where Captain Seth Thornton, he was a commander of about like a small small party, uh, seventy. It says here seventy dragoons. Um, basically, uh, acting on the advice of a local guide, investigated an abandoned hacienda. He discovered a small body of Mexicans on the summit of a rising ground about twenty-five miles from the U.S. camp that he left. He immediately charged upon them, but the main body of about two thousand Mexican soldiers, under the command of Colonel Anastasio Torrejon, were on the other side of the hill and therefore unseen. Coming up, captured the assailants after a battle of a few hours. Um, in which 16 American dies, um, also reveals that like this was, so there's debate here, I should say. There's debate whether Thornton acted like alone in this engagement or whether Taylor uh, basically wanted him to do this to basically try and incite the Mexican military into action, which in this case they did. Like Thornton is captured and 16 of his men die. Like he's, he remains a war prisoner, I think, until like 1847. So he remains a, remains a prisoner of war until that point. But this is the point, I guess, that I'm tr- really driving at. Was this, were these soldiers sacrificed, these 70 dragoon soldiers of which, like I said, 16 die, were they sacrificed by their commanding officer or dare I say, even by going all the way up to the executive branch to get to go the Mexican military into interaction that would give Polk the grounds to officially call for war. What do you think? I mean, there's so much conspiracy theory here, but also some of like the, the journal entries and even the historical theorists on this do posit, especially from the Mexican side, that Thornton wasn't just like a curious guy out there just like checking out this abandoned hacienda. Like this is something that... Um, yeah, I mean, that's kind of what I think just hearing the story. And I can't personally prove it. I do want to say that I cannot personally give you an entire yeah. chain of... Of, of primary sources that guarantee Polk wanted this to happen. I yeah. can't do that, but it is it is considered. Yeah, I mean, it, it does sound suspicious. Let's just say that, right? That he's out, he's out, clearly out there looking for something. And like I said, 16, and we know this to this day, 16 American soldiers die. Again, they're, they've invaded Mexico at this point. Mm-hmm. They're in Mexico. So they die invading Mexico, but now the Mexicans are the evil ones. Exactly. 
And, and that's how, how it's painted. Does that story get told in American right. history? Right. Remember you know the I mean? Maine, right? When we're yeah. talking about the Spanish-American exactly. War or the the Lusitania or whatever, like mm-hmm. when we're talking about World War One, these types of things. The United States is clearly the, the belligerent here. They yep. are the belligerent. Right. And yes, 16 American soldiers did die, but they died invading another country. Mm-hmm. Like, you knew what you signed up for. Mm-hmm. So, okay. Anyway, it, it doesn't matter. Polk gets what he wants. He gets the declaration of war from the Senate. Now, not uh, from the Senate, from the entire legislative branch, actually, House to Senate. But I must stress that this is important that he's able to basically get this to be able to get this declaration of war is key because there were a few that were not there were a few senators as well as house representatives that were not fully on board with this the very famous Abraham Lincoln before of course he eventually goes on to become president he did not think this war was going to be justified he already knew like he saw the strings that control the system mm-hmm. uh, and I'm not a huge Lincoln fan myself for a whole host of crap that maybe we'll talk about in a future episode that he did he's over I think he's turned into too much of a hero for various things he did yep. but regardless I must stress in this case he was 100% in the right. He basically calls this an imperial war. What we're, we're declaring here is going to be an imperial war. There's no justification for this. This is just for annexation. During this time, Polk also sends a man named John Fremont to California. And his job, we know this, his job is to scout and California. This is, there's no debate here. There's no misunderstanding of treaties. California is unequivocally Mexico. Mm -hmm. He sent John Fremont there, again, basically to scat and rabble-rouse. There were some Californians at this point in time that were also kind of pining for their independence. They wanted to play what they called at the time the Texas game, in quotes. They called it the Texas game, and they saw what the Lone Star Republic was able to accomplish. Polk thought Fremont could get enough of them um, rounded up to where they could actually have their own little cute little Californian war for independence, and then eventually the United States could annex them uh, in very much the same way. So he goes there, and in 1846, a revolt is promoted. It is called the Bear Flag Revolt, and it basically mirrors what happened in Texas. And of course, if you look at the California state flag to this day, right, the bear's on there. We can Mm -hmm. see, of course, that's tied to California's somewhat warped history of of its own past. Uh, I don't know that it's as warped as Texas, but it's still pretty damn warped uh yeah we'll leave it at that okay anyway um polk polk like i said during this time has slidell negotiating ariaga once um once herrera says uh he negotiates with herrera he's overthrown ariaga says hard pass um the other thing that's kind of interesting here that is often overlooked during these negotiations as i come back to them i'm going a little bit out of order here but but I think it's interesting, is one of the last offers Slidell um, provides before Herrera is overthrown is that they are willing to forgive $3 million in damages against the Mexican government. Apparently, the United States had low-key been holding on to this, or maybe it manufactured this just random amount of money that Mexico owed the United States for damages to American property when Mexico was winning its independence from Spain. Now, bear in mind, the Monroe Doctrine was all about this, right? Like, Mm -hmm. that's what we're supposed to be about. We're supposed to help these countries liberate themselves from these European colonizers and set up these republics. but. When Mexico does it, and somehow, maybe, this is a big maybe, because the records are all super like murky on this between the, th- the three different countries in this case, Spain, U.S., and Mexico, $3 million in damages to U.S. property, we'll forgive those if you just give us like 55% of your territory. Right. Unbelievable. <laughs> okay. Anyway, um, 
let's move forward. By May 13th, Congress, uh, by May 13th of 1846, as I mentioned, Congress officially declares war on Mexico. In the meantime, General Santa Ana himself is able to negotiate his release um, from Texas by agreeing to sell, or from the Texas Rangers and the United States to sell Mexico out. He then also, once he of course negotiates his release, acts as if he's going to work for the benefit of Mexico. He's like, Again, this this guy is out of control. Like he's an enigma. He's working for all sides. Who's he lying to? Everybody. Because right. he also like, likes being dictator of Mexico and oppressing his own people too. So he likes all of these things. Um, yeah, maybe he maybe he deserves his own like biographical episode. This guy's cool. Yeah, it would be kind of cool. Anyway, moving on. He lies to both sides as once he's released, he reclaims the presidency of Mexico um, once he's back. And he was also be, he was being held in Cuba. I should clarify there, even though he's being held by like Texans, um, and by, he was originally captured by the Texas Rangers and then held by the United States. They were also he ends up being held in Cuba of all places, which, again, we've talked we've had a, a whole episodes on the uh, very famous prisoners of Cuba over and over again. Mm-hmm. Well, Santa Ana is just one in a long list, maybe among the first um, famous prisoners of Cuba. But once he gets back, he claims the presidency of Mexico. So the California campaign kicks off with a bunch of small-scale battles. Um, Californian, uh, it wasn't nearly as organized. California wasn't nearly as organized as Texas in its independence movement. But basically between small-scale militias and help from U.S. forces that eventually show up both like overland and then on the coast, and the coastal, the coastal battles would be the most important here along the uh, Pacific coast, California slowly but surely is able to... Uh, uh, I guess, nominally gained its independence by uh, January 12th of 1847. I, I know I kind of skipped over a lot of battles here, but none of them are going to be as big and important as the ones in Texas, because uh, for both for, for both the United States and Mexico, the, the, the military campaigns in Texas are going to be exponentially more important. Um, and Mexico just doesn't have the forces to wage a large scale, I don't know, I say resistance to both U.S. invasion and, of course, the independence movement of California for there to be like major battles in California. I'm not saying there's no death or destruction. There is, just not enough for me uh, to talk uh, heavily about right now. One of the main campaigns, like I said, took place on the Pacific Coast. It's called the Pacific Coast Campaign. And it's basically uh, small scale skirmishes off the coast. Uh, based on American naval blockades of ports. Um, In terms of the major, like, fighting that we need to be talking about, it takes place uh, basically in Texas and all the way down south into Mexico proper. So I really want to uh, pick up here with the Battle of Palo Alto. And again, I'm going to read from another source, source here. This source is MexicanHistory.org, so we'll shout out that source here. Uh, basically, this is what they have to say about the Battle of Palo Alto. He says, On the 8th of March, the next day, the march was resumed at noon. The enemy was discovered, drawn up in a battle array upon a prairie three miles from the Palo Alto. The army was halted and the men refreshed at a pool. At 2 p.m., the army had advanced by heads of columns till the Mexican cannon opened up upon them. And they were deployed into a line, and Ringold's light artillery on the right poured forth its rapid and deadly fire on the enemy. The Mexican cavalry, mostly lancers, were on their left and were forced back to the destructive charges of the discharges of the artillery. To remedy this, General Arista ordered Torreon, uh, general of cavalry, to charge the American right. This he did, but was met by the flying artillery under Lieutenant Ridgely and by the 5th Infantry. The lancers were again driven back. 
At this period, the prairie grass was set on fire, and under cover of its smoke, the Americans advanced to the position just occupied by the Mexican cavalry. Again, a Mexican division of Lancers charged upon the command of Colonel Montero, but uh, but with little success. The continuous fire of artillery disor- disordered and drove back the enemy's columns. On the left wing of our army, attacks of the Mexicans were met by Duncan's battery and by other troops of that division. The combat on our side was chiefly carried out by artillery, and never was there a more complete demonstration of the superior skill and energy of the army of service as conducted by the accomplished graduates of West Point. He, who was the life and leader of the light uh, artillery, Major Ringhold, was in the engagement mortally wounded and died in a few days. The battle was terminated with the possession by the Americans of the field and the retreat during the night of the Mexicans. Arista, dating his dispatch, says, in the sight of the enemy at night, this might be true, but he was in retreat and took a new position several miles off at Resaca de la Palma. A ravine here crossed the road and on the other side, it was skirted with uh, dense thickets. This ravine was occupied by the Mexican artillery. The position was well chosen and with troops better skilled in the use of artillery and with greater energy of body might have easily been defended. Now, I did kind of preface this whole episode saying I wasn't going to go heavily into military strategy, but I think that one's important because that Battle of Palo Alto is like one of the first like real kickoffs where we would call it a former military engagement between like actual U.S. forces and actual Mexican forces. And I must say here, there's an important admission that even on this like kind of like Mexican perspective of the war, that in terms of training and battle tactics, they did recognize the U.S. forces were better. I mean, mm-hmm. we, we see it right there. Um, any thoughts? on that no not really i think it's an interesting quote okay this is after this battle of palo alto is when real major formal preparations for the invasion of mexico begin to take place um and the major target um of this initial part of the invasion at least for ground troops eventually the navy will circle around through the gulf of mexico and also a major target would be veracruz but we're not there yet for ground troops it was monterey monterey is still a massive very important city in northern mexico and Monterey would became, become the seat where like the Texas Rangers, as well as the United States military, would kind of show um, some of its superior, I suppose, fighting capabilities, but also some of its, um, for lack of a better term, um, moral hypocrisy as well, mm-hmm. uh, as in the Battle of Monterey. It would be one of the earliest actual like engagements in U.S. military history of what we call urban warfare. I think that's pretty self-explanatory. But anything you want to chime in? What urban? What 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 would make urban warfare more interesting than the traditional battles? Maybe we see being fought in um, the American War for Independence um, or I mean, the battles just, they were fighting against First Nations. Yeah, I mean, even we can contrast it with the description you just gave of the skirmish on the plains, right? Like, it's a completely different thing when, like, they had to set the prairie on fire so they would have a veil of smoke to reorganize, etc. Like, urban warfare is a completely different animal, right? Absolutely. So here, and here's the thing with, with Monterey, once the battle is won, and again, I'm not going to spend a lot of time um, talking about like how many people died or what, what, what all the specific strategies were, but I do want to talk specifically about what the Texas Rangers began to teach like formal U.S. forces as well on how to conduct urban warfare in, Mon- in Monterey, uh, Mexico during the Mexican-American War. Once like the major part of the battle was won, what they would do is go door to door like uh, houses um, and basically kick them down with like non-combatants inside, right? Just like families hanging out, like they're not, they're just Mexican families hanging out. They would go door to door, the Texas Rangers go to door to door, kick these families down, hold them up, take their uh, uh, provisions, their resources, whatever they had, food, water, whatever it was, uh, 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 jewelry, uh, gold, if there was any, like anything. They would basically seize these. 
and they would terrorize the family, like literally terrorize the family at gunpoint. Um, and there are, are numerous like accounts that we can like look back on of like even sexual predation against like the women of the household by these Texas Rangers and in some cases by U.S. troops. Um, and it's definitely become legion in Mexican history, obviously not popularly taught here in the United States. But yeah, in Texas, yes, basically the Texas Rangers um, to this day in a lot of Mexican historiographies are known as the Dia, Diabolicos Tejanos. And you know what that means. What does mm-hmm. that mean? Devil Texans. Yes, absolutely. The te- or the Texas devils, right? Mm-hmm. That's what that's what they're called because of the horrors they committed, horrors they committed um, in the invasion of Monterey as they sweep through the town, again, door to door, basically checking. And this should sound super familiar with people who know the tactics taking place uh, to this day in the Middle East. Um checking for any potential insurgency or right. harboring of any sort of mix Mexican military. Like this is, exa- so this isn't invented in the uh, whatever, in the modern wars in the Middle East or even in, in the jungles of Vietnam when they, things would take place in places like My Lai and uh, these US soldiers would go and terrorize the citizens of these small villages looking for any sort of communist threat. This dates back, we could argue, all the way to the Battle of Monterey. And I would actually even argue before that when they would terrorizes we learned in a prior episode like Iroquoian villages and Algonquian speaking villages along the Atlantic coast where George Washington literally ordered the ethnic cleansing of the Iroquois League of Peace and Power by devastating all of their crops and burning their villages all to the ground mm-hmm. he gave that order to another oh not an O'Sullivan just a Sullivan in that case but anyway but there's a very rich history here. Why do you think we don't necessarily talk about the tactics and strategies sometimes use and use strictly of terror by U.S. forces in their invasions of other countries. And like I said, this isn't like a unique to Monterey. I gave the more modern examples of like Vietnam or Iraq. Um, God knows what happened in Fallujah. But like, why don't we, why don't we, why don't we talk about this? I mean, it very clearly tarnishes the historical image of the U.S. military and just the entire ethos of, like we talked about, manifest destiny and just the expansionism. And it's often overlooked, right? Like we talk about like, the Louisiana Purchase and like what it was like a business transaction, right? But we ignore how much of the expansion of the United States is just completely atrocious and just a result of all straight call it out terrorism. Yeah, well, and we can see it here after, of course, this this like reign of terror falls down on Monterey, Mexico, an armistice, a brief like ceasefire is called between the two militaries, right? Because everybody's like, we're, we're going to slow down right now. Like Mexico, the Mexican military is in retreat. So mm-hmm. they definitely need a break. They need a break. But the United States uh, military, again, under General Taylor, also needs to get its stuff back together now after basically holding Monterey, Mexico. And, and they need to, of course, consolidate what they have and find a new strategy for how they're going to continue their pursuit into Mexico. So they are. They are. They're going to continue to invade Mexico. So there is a brief armistice that is signed. And eventually, of course, um, this this armistice is going to be discontinued or else the war wouldn't have happened. And again, from our source here, um, MexicanHistory.org, the War Department did not choose to continue the, ars- d- d- choose to continue the armistice. But on the 13th of October, uh, directed General Taylor uh, to give notice that the armistice should cease and that each party should be at liberty to resume hostilities. In communicating this no- notice to General Santa Ana, the uh, then in command of the Mexican Army, General Taylor took occasion to suggest the idea of an honorable peace. To this, the Mexican chief replied, 
you should banish every idea of peace while a single North American in arms treads upon the territory of this republic. So it is interesting that Taylor, after the horrors uh, that, I mean, I'm not sure that General Taylor was aware of what was going on in each and every household of Monterey, Mexico, but I mean, he had to have heard stories, Mm -hmm. but he's willing now to look for some sort of peaceful resolution after winning um, in uh, Monterey, but it is Santa Ana that declines this peace, at least in this source. So this American push into more of the heart of Mexico um, leads to one of the major battles known as the Battle of Buena Vista. On February 22nd, 1847, again from MexicanHistory.org, Santa Ana personally marched north to fight Taylor with 20,000 of his own men. Taylor only had 4,600 men, but had been entrenched at a mountain pass called Buena Vista. So he has like the geographical advantage. He doesn't have the numerical advantage. Um, Santa Ana suffered uh, so many like desertions on the way, which is interesting. Like, I mean... Santa Ana, like I said, is just a complex figure, but Mm -hmm. his own soldiers, in many cases, were also not willing to fight for him. Uh, By the time he gets there, he's probably lost about 5,000 men. So he's only got about 15,000 men, and they're exhausted by the time they get to this mountain pass. He demanded and was refused surrender by the United States military, so he decided to attack. Um, Santa Ana flanked the U.S. positions by sending his cavalry and some of his infantry up like a steep terrain that made up one side of the pass. And while the division of infantry attacked frontally uh, along the road leading to Buena Vista, um, there was just like a lot of furious fighting and long story short, Santa Anna is eventually going to like lose this battle. Um, he withdraws uh, in the middle of the night. He leaves Taylor in control of basically all of northern Mexico. So even though he had like numerical superiority, Taylor's geographic, geographic, is that the word I'm looking mm. for? Yeah. Yeah. Terrain, sure. et cetera. Yeah, yeah, whatever. His superiority, as well as like the fact that his troops were fighting more for him, mm-hmm. um, led to a Santa Anna's defeat. Um, which is important. In fact, it's this battle, this, this, um, God, I, I hate to ever say the United States is like the, um, underdog, but I guess numerically they were the underdog, but it is this battle specifically that he is going to like ride to the presidency himself, right? Mm -hmm. Like ride to, or ride, attempt to ride to the presidency in 1848. It's going to be like a major point of his, um, political platform is the fact that he was a good military leader, which again says a lot about like the purview of the imperialist United States is that so many of the executives are selected for their military prowess, mm-hmm. not for like their, their prowess in, in being good educators or being good healthcare providers, or it's because they're really good at what, so what does that say about us as a culture that, it, it, that we value in leadership or in executive leadership, somebody that, 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 that fights other people? Yeah, I mean, especially on a country whose entire history is predicated on war. And I don't just mean like it was formed out of war, right? Like that's common. But the fact that it has been at war essentially from the beginning without break, you know. Eventually, um, the Taylors, uh, at once they, of course, win this Battle of Buena Vista, they're going to continue to push through the heart of Mexico. In the meantime, we have a siege taking place at the wildly important port city of Veracruz, and it is so important. If you're, if Veracruz is being sieged um, in the Gulf, that means Mexico in general is like cut off from a whole bunch of like trade and resources that it absolutely needs to thrive. So it's once Veracruz is under attack and then successfully sieged, which means like trade is done there, 
that's kind of like the death the death knell for like Mexican ability to be able to fight back at that point in time. And the siege takes place again. I'm gonna I'm not gonna even go through as many details as I did with Buena Vista. Long story short, there's like there's artillery. Um, there of course are battle. I was about to say battleships, like we're talking about. Like <laughs> no, but of course there are. We'll just call them boats. We'll call them warships. <laughs> we'll call them American warships. Like this siege is a big deal. We even have like some of the invading force at at Veracruz are led by some very important people that would play a massive role in an American war later. Robert E. Lee is there. Ulysses S. Grant is there. Stonewall Jackson is there. They're all at this. They're cutting their teeth at the siege of Veracruz. And we all know they would go on to fight, um, in this case, each other, in the case of Grant and Lee and Jackson, um, in the American Civil War. But they're getting their their teeth cut here. Teeth? 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 (laughs) Their teeth cut here. Uh, any commentary there? Anything you want to chime yeah, in on? An interesting connection. Yeah, it is a very interesting connection. So once uh, Veracruz is seized after the siege, it basically acts as the gateway to Mexico City, right? And once you're able to get to Mexico City, and they siege Mexico City, but it doesn't even put up quite the fight that I would argue that Veracruz does. Once they're able to seize Mexico City, and they do, they do capture Mexico City, um, uh, it's it's basically it's done at this point. Winfield Scott, if anyone is curious, is the uh, American credited with taking Mexico City on September sixth of eighteen forty seven, um, and this is where negotiations for what's going to transpire after the Mexican uh, American War um, take place. So essentially, the United States wins this war. I know I probably didn't spend enough time talking about like all of the strategies, but that's just not what I do. Um, about how they were able to win this war, even sometimes being outnumbered by Mexican forces. Um, but anyway, I, part of it is through fear and terror and all these other types of campaigns that were waging in places like Monterey, like the legend of Monterey, even to go back to that for a second, like I cannot stress like the indelible mark that left on so many people in Mexico about the Texas Rangers and U.S. troops. And like I said, that news traveled quick through other parts of Mexico. So maybe uh, the heartless military strategist, which many of them are in my personal opinion, would argue, well, then it was worth Worth it. it was totally right. worth it to be this horrible to these people in Monterey because it made um, seizing, American lives. Yeah, it right. made seizing yeah. these other cities so much easier. Um, but regardless, um, the results lead to the very famous treaty, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo, where essentially the United States would still pay Mexico a little bit for the territory that it had decided it was going to annex. $15 million was what was going to be paid for New Mexico, Arizona, um, parts of Colorado, um, inclu- uh, parts of Utah, parts of Nevada, and of course, all of California. In fact, maybe it is all of Nevada. Anyway. What was the original price? I'm thinking back. It was like 50 million or 55 million? No, it was 25 plus three. So or oh, it was 25 three. plus five. It was 30. And they would forgive the 3 million oh, war right. date. Yeah, so yeah. essentially like 33 million. Right. Even so basically, the 3 million was invented. Yeah, the yeah. 3 million was invented. So it's like basically half price. But here's the thing. That original part didn't, didn't count. It, that was just for California and New Mexico. Mm-hmm. This now includes Arizona, parts of Colorado, parts of Utah, parts of Nevada. So it includes those as well now. Right. In all, 55% of Mexico, from basically the Texas War for Independence to now, would be annexed by the United States. 55% of Mexico. And they do all this. You want to talk about predatory. They do all this. If, you, if, if, if you've stuck with us this long in this episode, dating back to like the 1821 Mexican War for Independence, they basically do all this when Mexico is like a fresh country, mm-hmm. still trying to find its footing. Think about that. Yeah, I think people like often 
you don't get much more pre- you're kicking a country basically when it's down yeah, it's still exactly. trying to figure out its political future its economic future um its military future it's dealing with some of the quote-unquote same issues it, it that you are with your westward expansion right first nations and how to incorporate them um it's dealing with the questions of slavery and they decide uh, correctly so and morally correctly so that that's not a thing anymore mm-hmm. it's still dealing with these things and you decide well now's the time strike while the iron's hot yeah, just going back to the geographical quantity, right? People, I think, definitely don't aren't aware of how how huge Mexico was before this moment, and how far into what is now the United States, like Mexico, actually went. Right, like you mentioned, parts of Colorado, like that's pretty damn far. Nine hundred thousand total square miles were annexed by the United States, and I must stress that, like, and 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 especially in these places, right, that we're talking about, where like uh, immigration is being disputed and it's a controversial issue, Arizona and New Mexico and Texas and California, these places like that. These places were all rightfully Mexico until mm-hmm. they were annexed by the United States after an aggressive imperial war. And, and we think we somehow have the like moral authority. I can't even stress this. If we go back to the beginning of the episode just now, this all starts with American legal and illegal immigration to Mexico. Right. The hypocrisy in this country is absolutely obscene sometimes. <laughs> yeah, it's ridiculous. Um, anyway, in terms of like the cost of war here. The United States, but a, a contrary, uh, or a contrary, a contrary, a controversial census at the time, and I say controversial because records in the 1840s are not super great, right. but by the best estimates, about 1,773 Americans died in combat in the Amer- in the um, in the Mexican American War. So those that's not a huge casualty number. 1,773 died so that the United States could fulfill its manifest destiny and seize other people's shit. Um, unfortunately, that number's small because here's a new one that's going to be pretty high. 13,271 Americans died from like disease and thirst in this war. Think about that for a second. Mm-hmm. So yeah, like that's combined total, that's 15,000 Americans died. For what though? I mean, right. I guess these states, they're states now, millions of people live in them, so whatever. They would say like cost, uh, whatever, the ends justify the means or whatever. The records for Mexican casualties are even harder to track because, again, the country had barely established itself when this war had broken out. Um, But by the most obscenely conservative estimates, about 25,000 Mexican troops died in this. And I have no civilian numbers for things that were happening in like Monterey. I have absolutely no, Mm -hmm. no one even really wants to estimate that, at least in in, in what cursory research I've done. But we do do think about 25,000 Mexican troops died in like combat. But I'm willing to bet like so many thousands more died, of course, due to the circumstance. Like even something as simple as the siege of Veracruz and being cut off from like resources would have led to deaths, right? Mm -hmm. Um, anyway, yeah, so uh, congressional campaigns, um, 
took place in the United States after this, believe it or not. There were congressmen in the United States willing to like basically take campaigns against corruption because of what took place during the Mexican-American War. So I want to stress that there were USers willing to fight the good fight even after the war. Um, and like I said, guys like Lincoln were like leading the charge. And, the, and these the basically what they were saying is the war was led to by corruption. So these campaigns against corruption, especially at the executive level and especially on the other side of the aisle, in his opinion, were what he was leading campaigns against because of the results of the Mexican-American War. So it's kind of super interesting there. Um, I want you to maybe put like a, a, a cute little bow on this. Like, what do we learn from this mythos of the Mexican-American War and undoing at least some of it? I am willing to admit that this episode was not as historically in-depth as some of the other episodes I've led on Myth is America because, like I said, we just kind of this one just came to us like almost overnight. But um, I mean, it's two pieces, right? For me, it's the complete mythology of Texas and its foundation and how the slavery aspect is very often omitted, if not always omitted, which is something that's so crucial that we cannot overlook it, right? But I mean, every history book does for the most part, even if it mentions it in passing, it very clearly is not the the, the emphasis in that story. So the Texas story the myth, its origination story, right, is suspect at best, if not just outright, mostly false, at least emotionally and ethically. And then the second part is really illuminating how the, the behaviors of the United States government and its military to expand westward and expand its geographical territory in, in, in violent and terroristic ways. Right. That we that are so often overlooked in the history books. Right. We don't learn about this uh, in detail in our K through 12 education, like as an example. Right. And so it just calls into question both the ethically constituted story, the origin story of Texas itself as a state, but then also just of the country overall. You know, remember the Alamo. Right. That's what we're taught. Mm -hmm. Anyway. That's it, man. Uh, hopefully we were able to add a little bit more to the conversation on the Mexican-American War. Hopefully provide you a little background about why any sort of debate regarding immigration south of the border is an absolute joke from the United States purview. Um, like, it's there's just no moral or ethical backing mm -hmm. to it. Um, so uh, anyway, take us out. Find us on our website, revolutionandideology.com. We are on Twitter at Rev and Ideology. If you're listening to this in your podcast app, uh, please subscribe and leave us a rating. If you're watching this, listening to this on YouTube, please like the video, subscribe to our channel, and leave us a comment so the algorithm uh, looks upon us favorably. Um, if you really, really love what we're doing, you can support us on Patreon. We are at patreon.com slash revolution and ideology. Thank you, thank you, thank you to our Patreon supporters. You really inspire us and keep us motivated to pumping out content. Uh, I'm Nick. I'm Jared. Later.